Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In the winter of 1933, Giuseppe Zangara attempted to change the course of history. If he had succeeded, America would be a completely different place in ways we could never begin to imagine. Fortunately, Zangara missed his mark that day in Florida. So this was uh, in the middle of February, just about two and a half weeks before the inauguration. This was the last time that a presidential inauguration was held on March 4th, which to that point had been the tradition. Eric Rauschway is a professor of history at the University of California, Davis. And Roosevelt was busy doing the kinds of things that presidents do before being inaugurated, which is assembling his cabinet, trying to get his party behind his legislative program, as well as dealing with some of the uh, unique crises of early 1933. The crises that Franklin Roosevelt faced were legion, and the way that he wanted to change America was epic, which the president that he had just defeated, Herbert Hoover, understood well. This campaign is more than a contest between two men. It is a contest between two philosophies of government. The Depression, Hoover's philosophy of economic recovery has been conservative. Opponent Franklin D. Roosevelt's philosophy is to offer the people a radical new deal. This is more than a political campaign. It is a call to arms. Roosevelt and his New Deal policies win him 42 of the 48 states. It looks, my friends, like a real landslide this time. But the excitement of FDR's landslide quickly bumped up against this reality. The country was falling apart. Banks were going under all over the place. About one in four Americans were unemployed. So Roosevelt's Florida vacation had to be kept short. He had taken a few days out to go for a pleasure cruise uh, on board a friend's yacht, the yacht of Vincent Astor, uh, who was a wealthy friend of Roosevelt's. And then they landed in Miami. And Roosevelt was going to take a few moments in Miami to greet his constituents. Um, The city had anticipated a large crowd, which they got. They laid out all of these... um, makeshift benches by setting aside, setting apart a couple of regular chairs and putting a plank across the two chairs. It was kind of bendy in the middle, but it would uh, seat more people than just the chairs that they had. And they'd made rows of these things in Bayfront Park in Miami. Rauschway describes this scene in his book, Winter War, Hoover, Roosevelt, and the First Clash over the New Deal. And he says, Roosevelt, who had been paralyzed by polio about a dozen years earlier, stayed in his open car to greet the crowd, which was common for him. At one point, he propped himself up so people could see him better, faced the large crowd, and grabbed a microphone. And he was probably very fortunate that he spoke very briefly and sat down so soon because back in the crowd, somebody tried to take a few shots at the president. And in order to get the angle, the would-be assassin hiked himself up on one of these wobbly benches so that he could see the president who had suddenly sat down. And uh, that's probably one of the reasons that he missed by uh, just a few uh, feet. Zangara may have missed the president-elect, but the bullet did hit Anton Cermak, the mayor of Chicago, who lay down, bleeding, on Roosevelt's legs and reportedly told him, I'm glad it was me and not you. He died a few weeks later. What Cermak knew, what FDR knew, what probably everyone in that crowd knew on that February night was that the country was about to undergo a radical change, if Roosevelt became president. 
which is exactly why Hoover had tried to warn people during the campaign about FDR's efforts to reinvent what America was all about. Hoover gave voice to the idea that this New Deal marked a radical departure with American traditions. And what he meant was that it was going to involve the government, the federal government, much more in the affairs of ordinary citizens than had been the American tradition. In fact, when Hoover heard about the assassination attempt in Miami, he saw it as perhaps his last chance to get rid of the New Deal. He uh, wrote Roosevelt a multi-page, handwritten, repeatedly drafted, careful letter in which he, in sort of one sentence, said, uh, you know, I'm very glad that you didn't get killed. And then uh, for the remainder of these uh, eight or nine pages said, here is why you must abandon the New Deal, uh, because, because it will be a disaster for the country. Roosevelt, of course, did not abandon the New Deal, and Hoover never abandoned his opposition to it. Soon, the New Deal would reshape the country fundamentally. It would give us LaGuardia Airport, the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge, the electrification of places from Tennessee to Alabama to Virginia, dams like the Shasta Dam in California, and elementary and high schools all over the country. But Roosevelt's ideas didn't just reshape America. His policies reshaped people's lives. They offered up the sort of security that many citizens had never known before. Now, nearly 90 years later, we are witnessing a political moment when a new raft of ideas promise to reshape the country. Ideas that seek to offer lots of Americans the sort of security they may have never known before. And today, when we talk about public education, it must mean making public colleges and universities tuition-free for the middle class and working families of this country. Anyone who is in a situation where they're in need of health care, we have an obligation to see that they're cared for. That's why I think we need more clinics around the country. We can provide universal child care for every baby in this country age zero to five. We can provide universal pre-K for every three-year-old and four-year-old. And make no mistake about it. This is a revolutionary proposal for the future of our country with wide-reaching implications. Those were presidential candidates Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Elizabeth Warren. And historian Eric Rauschway says we don't know whether people will end up supporting the massive changes that these folks are offering up. But if they did, it would be a reimagining of America in the same mold as what FDR did nearly a century ago. I think it would shift the balance in the same direction that the New Deal shifted the balance, which is to say to give the average American working person a greater sense of security in their circumstances. And this is something that, that, that New Dealers thought about. I mean, you, you, you pinpointed a couple of programs that the New Deal didn't manage to get around to, child care and health care being two of them. During the war years, there, there was an effort to provide child care for women war workers, but it wasn't by any means uh, successful or universal, although there, there was a, a gesture in that direction. Uh, in the Social Security Act of 1935, the uh, administration decided not to pursue uh, public health care programs precisely because uh, they'd been defeated uh, uh, by lobbyists in, in years prior. So, but those ideas, because they give the American working person, you know, one or two fewer things to worry about on a daily basis are very much in line with the New Deal. 
Rauchway says that the current situation, in which our job is tied to our health care, ties Americans down in a way that the New Deal tried to counteract. That was the idea of unemployment insurance in the 1930s, which would, theoretically, free people up a little to make better decisions about how to chart their own future. And we'll talk more in a few minutes about current politics. But first, let's travel back to the moment when FDR's policies were about to take effect, a moment when Republicans were panicked about this slate of new ideas and entirely new agencies that were being dreamed up, the Works Progress Administration, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and on and on, and a moment when the president, too, was panicked, but not about Republicans or about pushback against his plan to reshape the country. Roosevelt, as far as I can tell, didn't worry about that because what he did worry about was that there would be uh, some kind of fascist coup in the United States if we didn't dramatically change the way things were done. I mean, again, he looked around the world. He saw the rise of Hitler. Hitler became chancellor of Germany in January 33 during this period between Roosevelt's election and his inauguration, and that really put Roosevelt on high alert as to the Nazi threat that this was uh, increasing in the world. He looked at things like the Bonus Army protest, which had occurred uh, where thousands of World War I veterans had come to Washington uh, you know, in 1932, and Hoover had driven them off with the army, and Roosevelt could see the potential of an American brown shirt movement, and not only Roosevelt, you know, the New York Times covered it that way as well. And there was just a lot of concern around the country and in Roosevelt's group that unless something were done to, again, demonstrate the effectiveness of American government Mm. in the face of this crisis, that there would be some kind of right-wing revolution. So in some ways, even though it was a big change, it was a small change in his mind versus what the change that could come. That's right. I mean, he thought these changes were necessary to preserve much of what Americans knew. So you talked before about how um, Hoover just was really, really against the New Deal, just couldn't think of anything in some ways more un-American. So let's listen, actually, to a clip of Hoover talking about the New Deal. And you're going to hear some excerpts of him. And he's basically making fun of the kind of alphabet soup of programs that Roosevelt brought about, the EPW, the FRSC, the WPA. Here he is. The history of the last two and a half years shows the floundering of this administration. That needs no more proof than the buffeting of those on dis- in distress, from FERA to PWA or to EPW and then to SERA and then to CWA and to FRSC. <laughs> and when they are all buried, their spirit will live on as I owe you. <laughs> Uh, Eric Rauschway, you hear the money line there is like, what will all this end up in an IOU, right, is the end of the sort of alphabet soup. Um, Give me a sense of how Hoover's, as you say, like really, really serious, heartfelt concern that the New Deal would ruin America, um, how that went on to shape the Republican Party. Hoover campaigned in 1932 on the idea that the New Deal was inevitably going to be a disaster. And he believed that, and he believed it was going to put him in a position to seek re-election in 1936. Now, that didn't happen. Mm. But he devoted himself to trying to reorient the Republican Party around this idea that it 
represented absolute opposition to any step in the direction of the New Deal. And he spoke to young Republican clubs. He spoke to Republican donors. He wrote to Republican candidates and Republican office holders. And he tried very hard, uh, ultimately, I think we can say now successfully, to ensure that this was the thrust of the Republican Party. Now, the background, of course, is that before this, there had been such a thing as progressive Republicans. Theodore Roosevelt, for example, was a very successful progressive Republican who had you know, taken some baby steps in the direction of a welfare state. But there really wasn't any such thing once Hoover got through with the Republican Party. And Hoover's writings were very influential on his fellow Californian, uh, Richard Nixon, his fellow Mm. Westerner, Barry Goldwater, who did become future leaders of the Republican Party and helped decide that it was going to go in that Hoover-esque direction. And when you talk about Barry Goldwater, uh, who became the nominee for president on the Republican side, Richard Nixon, who, of course, uh, became president on the Republican side, Um, Do you feel like those people always remembered, even though the New Deal, you know, by the time they were in power was a while back, do you feel like those people always thought that the New Deal was like the seeds of a huge wrong turn for America? Well, Goldwater certainly did. He really thought much as Hoover did, that this betrayed some kind of civic religion that Americans had that forbade such experiments. Uh, Nixon, for reasons that are obvious and perhaps we don't need to go into here, is probably largely without principles on this score. Uh, And so it's harder to say. But Nixon did have and make use of uh, Hoover's manner of, you know, pointing out that every step in this direction was a step towards communism. Mm -hmm. So on the other side, let's hear how FDR himself um, advocated for the New Deal. And I guess my big question here is whether in doing this, he, maybe on the Democratic side or maybe for all of America, was trying to reinvent the role of government. Let's listen to a fireside chat. This is from 1935. The objective of the nation has greatly changed in three years. Before that time... Individual self-interest and group selfishness were paramount in public thinking. The general good was at a discount. Three years of hard thinking have changed the picture. More and more people, because of clearer thinking and a better understanding, are considering the whole rather than a mere part. So do you think that the New Deal sort of completely changed how we think of government in the U.S.? I think it did that for a a lot of Americans and certainly for a majority of Americans, you know, completely is is a tall order. The New Deal really was the greatest peacetime source of patriotism in American history, right? He talked about pulling people together in the interest of everyone without a war or without an enemy right. except hardship. And he was very successful in creating that sense. As you know, in 1936, he was reelected by the largest margin of any president since James Monroe ran unopposed. You know, it was, uh, it was a very <laughs> successful program. So even though he had been elected, I think in a, correct me if I'm wrong, but in a pretty big landslide, even in the first election in 32, right? right. He, he soundly defeated Hoover, right? Right. Okay. Still, I assume he had to get some of these ideas through Congress. Um, if he's advocating for these like really unusual ideas or things that, you know, are, are really going to take the country in a different direction, how does he get those things through the House and Senate? Well, he 
benefited immensely from having large democratic majorities. However, it's important to point out that that's kind of illusory because the Democratic Party of the 1930s leaned heavily on very conservative Southern delegations uh, whose principal aim in politics in many respects was to make sure that Jim Crow was unaffected by federal policy. So that was always a, a little bit of an obstacle to pushing forward with the New Deal. He was aided by the uh, fact that there was a faction of the Republican Party, particularly in the Middle West, that was uh, progressive. And so he had this, this kind of fairly reliable coalition amongst you know, what we would today call liberal Republicans and liberal, mostly Northeastern Democrats. Mm. And then sometimes, often, especially in the early days of the New Deal, these conservative Democrats who would also go along. Mm. Over time, that became more difficult because as Roosevelt became more interventionist with respect to opposing the rise of Nazism in Europe, he really began to lose a lot of those Midwestern Republicans whose politics were opposed to that. So mm. he became less able to push through those kinds of policies. When you look around the U.S., what ripples do you feel like you still see from the New Deal? I think that we all, whether we know it or not, live inside the New Deal all the time. I mean, it's not just the built landscape where we walk on sidewalks, drive on roads, fly into airports, drive over bridges that were construction efforts from the New Deal. That's only right. just the beginning of this story. I mean, if you participate in any kind of investment plan, you depend on the securities regulation that was established by the New Deal. If you've mm. ever had a small business loan, that's from the New Deal, mm. right? If you've ever uh, put your money in the bank with the expectation you will get to see it again, that's because of the New Deal, <laughs> the Federal Deposit mm. Insurance Corporation, right? If you have relatives or if you yourself are on Social Security, if you've ever been unemployed, those are New Deal things. If you've had disability insurance, that's from the New Deal. If you joined a union, that's from the New Deal. You know, not even is this limited to the United States. If you look overseas, the infrastructure, the trade rules that govern international trade, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, these are all direct results of the New Deal. Again, going back to within the United States, our entire farm policy is a legacy of the New Deal. There's essentially no aspect of ordinary American life. And we haven't even gotten on to, you know, state and national parks and the forms of leisure that were created and authorized and enabled by the New Deal. It sounds like it's almost like wallpaper or something. It's there and we see it, but we hardly even register. It, it just seems like part of life and hasn't it always been? Right. And that's why when politicians like Goldwater back in the 60s or Reagan or since oppose bits of the New Deal, they're very careful not to take on the whole thing because you really can't, right? It is the America that we have. So they pick around the edges and they look at things that they think might be controversial or less popular. But to take on the whole thing would be impossible. Okay, so let's take a quick break here. Um, when we come back, how a new slate of proposals from free public college to universal health care might change the country if they were enacted and whether we're ready for them to be enacted. I'm talking with Eric Rauschway, a history professor at the University of California, Davis. He's the author of Winter War, Hoover, Roosevelt, and the First Clash over the New Deal. You can find out more about his work and the assassination attempt on FDR that we talked about earlier. That's at innovationhub.org. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Back in just a minute. No cheer, but we'll get a new deal for Christmas this year. 
Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 2007, the New York Times columnist Tom Friedman wrote about something strange happening in his garden. Daffodils were blooming. Now, this wouldn't have been particularly unusual, except that it was January and temps in the Washington, D.C. area were already comfortably into the 60s. The year that had just concluded, 2006, was the hottest year ever recorded up to that point. And something, Friedman said, had to be done. Something monumental. This could be the biggest transformative concept that's come along in a, in a long, long time. It's about a Green New Deal. That's Friedman talking about his vision of the Green New Deal in 2009, a couple of years after he wrote the column about the daffodils. And I think it has a huge potential to not only reconnect us with the world, to reconnect us at home, but to really propel us forward economically, scientifically, educationally, industrially into the 21st century. However you feel about the idea of a Green New Deal, one of the striking things about the concept is that when Friedman invoked it in the early 2000s, he was reaching back to a policy that had been invented 75 years before. For a country, a species maybe, that has a pretty short attention span, that's something worth taking note of. I think it's a remarkable testament to the power and the achievement of the New Deal and the way in which it was woven into our society. And it's, again, it's something that we can look back to and marvel that Americans were able to bring themselves together to do that sort of thing. Eric Rauschway is a scholar of the New Deal at the University of California, Davis, and he's chronicled both Franklin Roosevelt's revolutionary changes to the country and the resistance he encountered. The story is one we see echoed today as Democratic presidential candidates propose policies that would, like the New Deal, fundamentally change the country. Universal health care, universal preschool, free public colleges and universities, not to mention, of course, the Green New Deal, which even some Democrats have criticized as amorphous and overly ambitious. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York sponsored the Green New Deal legislation in the House, which was a broad, overarching plan to tackle climate change and economic inequality. Here she is responding to Speaker Nancy Pelosi labeling the policy a green dream. All great American programs, everything from the Great Society to the New Deal, started with a vision for our future. And I don't think that, um, you know, I don't consider that to be a dismissive term. I think it's a great term. Republicans, meanwhile, have had their own criticisms of this new New Deal. The much-heralded Green New Deal. Nothing says forward thinking and fresh ideas quite like borrowing the name of an 80-plus-year-old policy program and just adding the color green. The Democrats are now advancing an extreme $100 trillion government takeover called the Green New Deal. Well, it does sound very similar, again, to Herbert Hoover's uh, strategy of how to criticize the original New Deal. Um, in terms of condemning it as socialist or communist, uh, as, as both McConnell and uh, Trump have done, the president and the Senate majority leader have both uh, brought out that same kind of, of rhetoric. Now, the question, of course, today is, um, do Americans have the same 
thinking about socialism and communism uh, as they did back in those days. Certainly, we have very different uh, ideas and very different partisan breakdown in our attitudes towards Moscow. One thing Rauschway does note about Representative Ocasio-Cortez, who has been a vocal advocate of the Green New Deal, is that she understands the original New Deal. I think Representative Ocasio-Cortez is, is interesting because she's, she's unusually clear-eyed about the New Deal's shortcomings. When you ask her, she'll say, you know, we have to understand that the New Deal wasn't very good with respect to the rights of people of color or women, and that if we want to undertake something again, we need to be more equitable in doing so. I think she's, uh, she's actually quite a good student of what she's looking at there. A big question for voters in 2020 as we consider our raft of proposed programs that would reshape America is whether we want something as fundamentally transformative as the New Deal. And it's worth looking at how the New Deal took effect, what it did to our lives, and what enacting it was really like. Rauschway says, though we may now take for granted things like Social Security, at the time, the New Deal was criticized not only by those on the right, but by those on the left as well. Well, there was a socialist party in the United States in the 1930s. Its leader was Norman Thomas. And conservative opponents of FDR would say that uh, he was aiding and abetting or carrying out the socialist program. They would say this so often that uh, at one point a reporter asked Norman Thomas if this was true. Is it true that President Roosevelt is carrying out your program? And Thomas replied, yes, on a stretcher. <laughs> Which is to say that he felt that the New Deal was kind of stealing some of the leftist rhetoric or enthusiasm or solidarity that sort of rightfully belonged to more properly socialist policies and appropriating it for a kind of, I don't know, capitalist middle way or something like that. If the original New Deal was speaking to Americans, I mean, it was addressed to Americans at a time when, you know, like a something like one out of four people were unemployed. I mean, just this, the banking system was falling apart by the day. I mean, things were just a mess, I think, in a way that it's probably hard to really imagine right now. That's not the time we're living through. And yet, you know, we were talking about, we hear these kinds of echoes of the New Deal. Do you think that, you know, it's much harder to sell these kinds of ideas to people who are, are living at um, a much more stable time, frankly? I think that's obviously true. We don't live in the middle of the Great Depression. We can all be grateful for that. I think that's not something to lament in any way. I do think, though, that we're, um, we're looking at a United States where a sense of insecurity is pretty widespread and pretty heartfelt throughout a lot of sectors of society. And in that respect, we might be getting on towards a time when people are more supportive of greater degrees of change. I'm not sure how many people look forward and feel that they are entirely confident in what the future will bring and that they do think that there are problems that we ought to address in one way or another. Hmm. The challenge for a politician in those circumstances would be, of course, to rally people around a common method of doing that. Uh, and Roosevelt, of course, was, was able to do that with this idea of an anti-fascist patriotic program that was going to bring people together and cause them to recognize how much they had invested in each other and how much they owed to each other. I don't know if we're going to see somebody able to do that in the near future. Hmm. 
Are there proposals, you know, one proposal we've heard is um, like for universal basic income. That's not not as common a proposal as the idea of like, you know, on the Democratic side, certainly the idea that everybody should have health care or maybe even free college tuition. But were there things like that, like universal basic income that within Roosevelt Circle got floated and for some reason or another, he said, yeah, I just don't think I can make this happen. I, I, I'm not going to propose this. Not not so much the universal basic income, but one of its counterparts in modern discussions, the so-called jobs guarantee. That's something that Roosevelt actually did campaign on in 1932, and they, they found themselves ultimately unable to kind of bring that to pass in the same way that we think about it now as a guaranteed form of employment for all Americans. They came close maybe with the WPA and the idea that unemployed Americans who could be employed would get a job with the federal government. One of the big ones, of course, that they did debate was public health care. They did debate the need of that. They perceived the need of that, but they just thought that politically it was impossible Hmm. to get that done. Another big program that they talked about that they found themselves unable to get out of Congress was, of course, an adequately large Keynesian-style stimulus um, it wasn't until 1938 that they even proposed such a thing to the Congress, having felt that it would be just sort of politically undoable prior to that. We've had a replay of that in 2008 and 2009, right. uh, of course, with the Obama administration feeling it couldn't get an adequate stimulus out of its Congress either. So those things do repeat. Do you think that if what's being proposed on the Democratic side um, those things were enacted that fundamentally, you know, dealing with preschool and education and health care, that instead of those things being something that you can either afford or you can't afford, you know, it became something that was just given to all Americans. Do you think that would change the country in somewhat the same way that the New Deal did? Well, historians are not usually in the future business, but uh, I will I will suggest to you that, yeah, I do think that those things would change the country in the way that the New Deal did. Those kinds of policies are designed to give ordinary Americans confidence that they can make decisions in keeping with what they'd like to do, that they can take risks without fearing that they're going to fall completely off the face of the earth economically, that they're not going to be subject to grinding poverty immediately upon making a misstep in the job market. And I think that giving people that kind of confidence, that kind of security, the idea that they don't need to worry so much about getting sick or about losing a given job does stand to dramatically reshape the way Americans feel about their lives. As I say, we tend to live right now, I think, in an age, no matter who we are, of really very high sense of insecurity, both on the right and on the left in this country. And I think that those kinds of policies aimed at giving people a greater sense of stability and security in their lives would dramatically change the way we feel. Eric Rauschway is the author of Winter War, Hoover, Roosevelt, and the First Clash over the New Deal. He's also a professor of history at the University of California, Davis. Eric, thank you so much. Thank you very much. If you want to know more about how the New Deal was received on the global stage, we've got an article for you about the ripples of FDR's policies across the pond. That's at innovationhub.org. 